Welcome back to another episode of Authentic Influence. I'm your host, Adam Connor. Today, we're going to divert just a little bit from the normal course of action here on the podcast and do something new. Now, first off, if you're new to this community, if you're new to this podcast, welcome. It's great to have you. Authentic Influence is a podcast which dives into how some of the most innovative and interesting companies in the world are mobilizing their masses to become more authentic in their marketing and messaging. And we do so through featuring those brands and their leaders. So typically, I'm talking to chief marketing officers and founders from all around the world. And over the past year, we've developed some really fantastic fantastic stories and shared some really fantastic people. So if you want to learn more, feel free to listen to some episodes we've done in the past or stay tuned. There are two more coming this week, but today is a special edition. And that's because over the last roughly week, maybe week and a half, there has been a very specific story centered around the subject of faking authentic. Now, this started with a Peloton ad, but the conversation has grown just slightly about what happens when you try to contrive a genuine moment. So I spent the middle and end of last week sitting down with some pretty impressive people in their own right to talk about this growing story and to learn more about the risks and benefits of authenticity and what happens when you fake it. I think it's fair to say from a generalist perspective that the reaction to the Peloton campaign has not been positive. That's Andrew Essex. He's the former CEO of Droga5 and today is the CEO of Plan A, a creative holding company, which he says is described as the Ocean's Eleven of marketing services. I don't have a dog in that fight, but if you use stock prices or measurement, which is, of course, the ultimate metric, a 10-point drop, a post 10 point point drop is not good. So it's been pretty uniformly negative. I'm sure their intentions were good, but the backlash has been pretty bad. Good intentions aside, it's clear that this has shown in the very, very short term, at least, that faking authentic, as our next guest says, will blow up in your face. This is coming from Mike Shields, who is a strategic consultant and was a journalist in this space for many, many years. By nature, being authentic is not telling a story, right? You're, you are being real, theoretically. And if you try and fake that or manufacture it, it's just going to blow up in your face or it's really dangerous. Trying to make a fake viral ad, like that ad was supposed to look like it was really someone captured. It's so staged and you're so set up for danger and mistakes there that it's a real, it's a real lost opportunity and just misstep. And to talk to that short term, of course, it's been very, very negative at the outset. But some think it may not last that way for very long. In terms of what it's doing for the brand, you know, to be honest, at this moment, I suspect it's neutral to positive. That's Peter Horst. He's actually a familiar voice on this podcast, as he was one of our launch interviews just over a year ago. He is the founder of CMO Inc., and formerly was CMO of companies such as Capital One, Hershey's, and Ameritrade. He's also an expert in brand risk, and last year released a book called Marketing in the Fake News Era, which dives into that subject. This is just an unfortunate ad that had some choices that, that were regrettable. We'll get more from him on that in a little bit. But for now, it's clear. The backlash to this Peloton ad has not been good. And it seems that in an effort to contrive an otherwise authentic moment, they've really missed the mark. Now, I went and made sure to ask all of these experts what their thoughts were on using real people and real stories as the gold standard when it comes to marketing. And the answers were pretty resounding. Andrew Essex, I think, had the best quote on this. 
Well, first off, the insight that peer-to-peer validation is more compelling than commercial validation is like saying the sun will come up in the east and go down in the west. I, I think the, the professional response to that is, duh. Horst backed it up by alluding to the power of these stories in general. Certainly, anytime you can use real people telling their stories in an authentic way, that's incredibly powerful. And Mike Shields stated that it could have been a much better result had Peloton just used a real customer. Yeah, it might have. I mean, what, what if they had, a, uh, you know, a guy who lost a lot of weight on it and changed his life? Like, then you would have, you know, some dramatic illustration of the power of the brand, and also you wouldn't have any branch of these ridiculous potholes that they, they self-inflicted wounds that they, they ended up with, and they didn't have to have someone making a really scary face like their husband urging them to exercise and join his cult. Now, to back up for a second, we don't mean to pile on on Peloton here, because they are, without a doubt, one of the most fascinating luxury fitness brands out there today, and they're growing incredibly quickly. As a matter of fact, this year, their marketing and sales budget went up to $320 million, and about $14 million went into the placing of this campaign. But with all that money at stake, and with such a large budget, and with such high growth dependent on people who are not part of the Peloton family being convinced by a so-called consumer journey, why would a brand like Peloton, or why would any brand in general, continue to try and chip away at this through using an agency, or through just using a staged or contrived method to produce an otherwise authentic and vulnerable story? There are a few answers to that question, according to the folks that I talked to. Peter Horst suggests it's because sometimes real people just don't play well. I'm thinking back to my past decades ago at Ameritrade, where we developed a brand positioning around the personality of the independent investor and wanted to use real investors. Then we realized, wow, often real people just don't come across well, particularly on, on television. So we did use actors to create characters being an expert in brand risk, he also suggests that there are trade-offs between creative risk and the risk of those portrayals. Unfortunately, the life of the marketer now is is about you know, which which risk are you going to embrace and live with, and how bad is it? And th- there's creative risk of you know e- either turning over brand stories or using real people that aren't terrific actors who will do what you want, or you're trying to create a narrative that is hard to, to find in that exact form in real life. So yes, there's all kinds of risks. Because it's not as natural a go-to move at this point for marketers to lean on consumer-generated stories for their core bread and butter, you know, there's still the, the, the tried and true is you write a script and you give it to an agency. But you, you touch on a very important risk, which is when you portray uh, customers, pseudo-customers in, a, in an advertising narrative, there's all kinds of ways you can go wrong. You can make them look silly. You can be condescending. Uh, you can be inauthentic and create something that is laughably, obviously not not a real sort of story. Andrew Essex went back to the good intentions of the folks putting this ad together, both on Peloton's side and the side of their agency, and suggests an institutional myopia may be to blame. The companies start with the best of intentions. There's a strategy then there's an idea, and then there's the execution of the idea. And there's generally an institutional myopia that takes place where you have a bunch of people in a conference room starting to fall in love with their own idea, not asking questions, reinforcing their own prejudices, and suddenly you have a catastrophe. The, the Pepsi Kardashian spot being the best possible example. So everyone thinks instead of making an expensive commercial, we can fabricate a video selfie and it will feel authentic because that's the way people communicate now. And they forget that 
this is in fact a commercial message and that it's transparent attempt at authenticity will be ripped to shreds by regular people. So it's just, I would say, a, a domino game of bad decisions that results in a catastrophe. Essex also notes that it's an execution question and that it's very possible that a consumer might not have produced a better result. To me, it's an execution question, not a conceptual question. So it could have gone just as wrong if they had handed the keys to the kingdom to a consumer. We've seen that with Doritos commercials. It doesn't necessarily mean that someone will produce a better piece of work or even a more authentic piece of work. I think it's at the end of the day, it's about execution and the professionals involved and the right degree of rigor and scrutiny. Shields seems to intimate this as well, because there's change management at stake. You have to change the way that brands think and work in order to get there. So it's possible to have used a consumer, but again, may not have made a huge difference. They could have shot a beautiful ad with real customers or had put cameras in people's hands and actually had them chronicle their workouts and it would be super cool and raw. But I think what you described, like it's hard to stop the, it's hard to put the brakes on the advertising infrastructure as it is. Like it's just, there's a lot of, there's a lack of comfort in handing the keys over to somebody else. But we have all these smart people, we have these brain creatives, pay them a lot of money. They These are the best people in the world to do this stuff. We, we, we can do our own research and figure out exactly where to place as a how to target. We know we know our consumers better than they do. It's, it's a little bit of arrogance. It's a little bit of inertia. It's a little bit of fear. It's a lot of those things that, that stop them from, you know, just like handing the keys over to somebody else. And what does it come down to? Control, Shields says. Brands have it. They don't want to give it up. I mean, I think they can't help themselves to a degree. They're used to control. They're used to controlling stories and controlling narratives. They've been able to do that for nine years. Okay, so here's where we are so far. Clearly, Peloton missed the mark a little bit with this ad, and it's unclear as to whether that will benefit them negatively in the medium to long term. It certainly is, from a reactionary perspective, in the short term. But it's also true that it's likely Peloton and other brands don't want to give up the control necessary to hand over these real authentic moments to real consumers, and they would prefer to produce them themselves. And yet we get back to the fact that most of these marketing experts do actually think that peer-to-peer and real people are the best motivators of action. And this isn't hard to imagine. You're more likely to act on something that a peer tells you or a family member or a friend or a coworker suggests than what you might necessarily see from an ad or from an influencer. And that's because society today is much more skeptical than it was, say, five, ten years ago. They're highly sensitive. And they understand when something is fake. Mike Shields put this really, really well when talking about the ad as a general misread of society. They're trying to celebrate how Peloton changes people's lives, makes you healthy, but they just kind of set themselves up by having this like really in shape woman being gifted by her husband at a time when people are uh, questioning like sexual politics and gender roles and society and all this stuff, and then. And then, you know, the, 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 her face in the end, it snowballed. And I think it, it, it was a big piling on effect. Peter Horst also said that this reaction is generally not surprising. You know, we can see, continue to see the reality of critic culture, right, where everything you do is going to be sliced and diced and analyzed and judged and, you know, the brand presumed guilty and strong opinions being plastered everywhere. So that that's not surprising. Um, it's also not surprising to see you know, very high degrees of sensitivity to the issues that people care about, whether that be sexism, racism, classism, whatever it might be. Um, People are very 
tuned to anything that feels like it's um, hitting the wrong notes. It seems apparent, both from these conversations that I've had and from what I've seen on social, that people will sniff fake things out. People are smart and they know when BS is being handed to them. And this critic culture and general high sensitivity has morphed society into something that Mike Shields calls pylon culture. We are in this moment of like, we're a piling on culture, especially social media feeds it where you want to like, if somebody makes a mistake, we go after them like crazy and, and bury them. Or we're it's like, we almost want to have this collective experience and through memes or through social media pylons or through mocking the same thing kind of brings people together in a weird way. But I, I don't know if there's a real lesson for marketers there. It's a, that everybody likes to make fun of something that, that looks really stupid. I don't know. So what we've got here is a groundswell of folks, a hive mind of people who like to pile on and who are highly sensitive to issues. Now, some of this comes out in frustration and anger and, and lashing out on the internet. And for others, it comes out in comedy. Notably, there was a parody done of this ad, which racked up social engagement multiples above what this Peloton ad did. And the sentiment was much more positive towards it. Andrew Essex spoke specifically to the juxtaposition of the two. I would love to see these two pieces of work juxtaposed in business schools across the country. So as of Friday morning, there were 3.9 million views of the Peloton parody video which is quite brilliant, which was forwarded to me and, and of course, forwarded to thousands and thousands of people. So here you have a person making a genuinely authentic piece of work with a great deal of wit and a, a scathing sense of humor, as opposed to a commercial piece of work masquerading as something authentic that can transparently be revealed as a commercial. So it's really a question of what is authenticity. Can you pretend to be authentic? Can you actually be authentic? How do you quantify authenticity? And that's a really fascinating thing because it's not exactly easy to define. It's like the Supreme Court definition of pornography. You know it when you see it, and it extends to political candidates and exercise bikes. So let's use those two as a juxtaposition. One scales because people see it and they share it, and one makes people react in horror. Why is that the case? It's almost epistemological, and I'd like to devote the rest of my life to solving that mystery. Essex begs the question, what is authentic? And by the way, this is probably a short anecdote that should be taught in many business classes, because it's a very pointed example of what happens when you try to fake it and when you might not know exactly what it is for your prospect audience. So where does Peloton, or brands who are looking to build more authentic stories, without coming off as staged, move forward. Peter Horst suggests it's questions of insights, curation, and being choiceful. One key is when, when you happen on a powerful insight, like the experience of, of using a Peloton is transformative and life-changing and powerful, and it's much more than an exercise machine. Great, that's an insight. How do you turn that into something that will compel and engage and inspire people who aren't already in the boat with you. And there are many, many ways to do that. And you know, one way is a great ad uh, that tells a story that is written by you know, copywriters. And then you just need to, to, to make sure you're connecting the dots between customer insight and prospect insight. And how do you make sure you're not misfiring or you know, setting off uh, unwanted reactions in that prospect. Another way is to let the customers tell their own story and similarly 
make sure you're curating that and and selecting and not guiding, but you know, being choiceful in what stories you share and how you share them in ways that will be resonant and, and approachable and accessible to to um, non-customers. So it's all really the same process, but you've you've got to start with you know a, a really deep cultural emotional understanding of you you your brand your customer and the people you want to attract and, and be thoughtful uh about you know what levers you pull and what communications you use and what tactics you employ to get there and then to further make sure that you've got the right people looking at your work and giving you feedback on it and and being open to that feedback. Mike Shields notes that brands might use consumers more in the future, but that there will be a certain point and will be certain brands for which consumers can only be so strong of an ambassador, specifically in categories which are more commoditized than others. There's a whole world of, of brands that I think the, the marketers and the agencies care a whole lot more about their, their favorite toothpaste shampoo than actual humans do. Like, I don't know. It, you know, the brands can only, I mean, sorry, consumers can only be ambassadors and super passionate about a, uh, a finite number of the brands. And, and you're starting to see what's going on with commodity products that are just being the brands telling stories about your, your detergent and what you, what light bulb you buy are just, that's going by the wayside where people just order things with two clicks on Amazon. So it's, I don't know if I, that's a sweeping statement, I think, to say that everything should go this way. The research is totally obvious. I think it really will depend on the category and the, and the, and the advertiser and the, and the degree of consumer passion. And finally, Andrew Essex, who has spoken with Pelton Leadership on this very issue, had this to say. I would say to the CEO, and I've had this conversation with him directly, you get what you pay for. So you're charging a premium for your product, but you're interested in spending less than a premium on your agency relationships, and the uh, chickens have come home to roost. So we have here three different perspectives, which all generally lean towards the same idea. It's probably good to weave in consumer stories more. Of course, there will be nuances as to how brands do it effectively. To me, the answer is this. Brands will crack this code eventually. And the people who are going to do this first and the brands that are going to win as a result are the ones who are genuinely working with their customers as partners and the best marketers of their brand. And not only having them be the source material for these stories, but also a main distribution and action channel for these stories, instead of necessarily having agencies make creative and having media companies push that creative out. Forget the fact that there is always the risk of that sort of media being distributed across platforms on which it is skipped or seen by bots or being seen as interruptive and inauthentic at the best. But worse, it just gives the idea that a brand is trying to do something that it either can't or shouldn't, as Mike Shields points out. If you're trying to figure out how to be authentic and find a way to make sure you come across like you're real to consumers, you probably shouldn't do it because you probably are going to end up with fake authenticity. And that's, you're just going to have to, your brands are going to have to find their comfort zone and go for it or don't do it at all. At the end of the day, I'm sure Peloton has learned a lot from this about what to do and about what not to do. And yes, their stock has taken a hit recently. And yes, there has been negative sentiment online. But, and I'll put one more line in from Peter Horst here, it is very possible that there could actually be a neutral to positive impact. I don't think Peloton will see any long-term impact or even short-term, medium-term. As, you know, as I said, I think if anything, 
it may even be a bit positive because all of the attention, I mean, it's every time you turn on the news, you see this thing, it's everywhere. They're getting an awful lot of visibility. I'm sure their awareness has certainly gone up. I think it will be an interesting question. I'm sure we'll see some data soon about whether favorability or various brand equities have gone up or down with various segments. But you know, this is not like United Airlines clubbing a passenger unconscious and dragging them off the plane, bloody. It's not that sort of depth and virality and, and uh, devastating an issue. So I, I don't think this will hurt them. If they go on and make three more kind of tone deaf ads and sustain this sort of weird subservient wife, black mirror kind of tonality, uh, then I think there's something funny going on and, and there will be longer term issue. But I don't suspect they're going to do a repeat of, of this in any meaningful way. Uh, so I, I, I think they'll be just fine. And I finished with this because Horst makes an important point. They can't be tone deaf multiple times. You need to figure out how to get into your prospects' heads through the perspectives of your consumers. Of course, we talk about this all the time on the podcast. And twice a week, we talk to brands who are attempting this in different ways. So I encourage you to stay tuned here and learn more about how brands are getting this done. We have a few more episodes left in 2019. It's been a really fantastic year. And I'll probably cap off the year too with some looking back and some trends that I've seen. This will definitely play a part into that. But for now, I want to thank you for listening into this special edition and learning a little bit more about what happens and what the greatest minds in marketing think when brands try to fake being authentic. This was an interesting one for me. I haven't necessarily done a podcast like this before. So if you've listened this far into the interview, into the episode itself, thanks very much for doing so. Here's how you can stay connected with me. First off, follow us on LinkedIn, Authentic Influence Podcast. This is where all of these stories live. And as I said, you're going to get a regular digest of how brands are looking to mobilize their masses in the most authentic way possible. Heck, we might even get Peloton on in the future and we'll have their opinion on this. You can also subscribe to this show wherever you want. iTunes, Spotify, Google, wherever you listen, we're there. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a rating and review across iTunes or wherever you listen. Or hey, hit us up on LinkedIn or post about us there. We're very LinkedIn heavy. We like that platform a lot for this and folks like us on it as well. I'm going to be back again tomorrow. I'm going to be back tomorrow. I'm going to be back Thursday with two more fantastic stories of how brands are attempting this and hopefully how they're trying to avoid faking authentic. But for the moment and for Authentic Influence, I've been your host, Adam Connor, and you'll hear from me again next time.